Welcome to Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, senior reporter on Vox.com's Foreign Desk. I'm here with Jen Williams, uh, the deputy foreign editor. Yochi Driesen is out this week, but we have a great replacement for him, Dara Lind, another senior reporter at Vox who covers immigration and many other topics for the Politics and Policy Pod. Say hi, Dara. Hey, Tim. Today we're going to be talking about a place that is very far away from the conflict that's consuming most Americans right now, but a place where 7,000 people have been killed by their own government in the past year. We're talking about the Philippines, whose leader, angry populist Rodrigo Duterte, has favorably compared himself to Hitler. Hitler massacred 3 million Jews. Now, there is 3 million, there's a 3 million drug addict. There are. I'd be happy to slaughter them. What he's saying there is that he wants to slaughter drug dealers like Hitler slaughtered Jews, incorrectly saying 3 million Jews were killed rather than 6 million during the Holocaust. My question, Jen, is why does Duterte want to kill drug dealers so much? Right. So that's a big question. So basically, he has kind of billed himself as the like the law and order president. Um, he was mayor of Davao uh, in the Philippines, obviously, um, for about 22 years and bragged that he had killed many drug dealers and criminals Um when he was mayor, and he ran basically on this platform of of cleaning up corruption, but mostly cleaning up the drug problem. Now, what's weird about that is that I actually was like, wow, there must be like a huge drug problem. If they're killing thousands of people, then it must be huge. And I looked, if you actually look at the data, it's it's not, I mean, it's not great. So so according to UN data, the way they, they measure it, this one metric, it's... Um, they look at the percentage of the population between ages 15 to 64. So the percentage of the population uh, who uses methamphetamine in the Philippines is 2.35%. So that's the highest ever recorded figure ever um, in, in the Philippines that they've recorded. The U.S. is 2.20. So 2.35 compared to 2.20. Australia is like 2.9. That's one of the highest places where methamphetamine use. Uh, and the opioids and cocaine are way, way lower. So it's this big kind of push to be this authoritarian, kind of dictatorial, powerful law and order guy. And it's not to say there isn't a drug issue, but it doesn't explain why he's killing thousands of people. And I think the other thing to, you know, when we think of law and order, especially in the context of anti-drug policies in the United States. We tend to think of this kind of like 1980s tough on crime. You know, you punish drug dealers really seriously through the criminal justice system. You let cops do, you know, maybe whatever they want. But for Duterte, especially at the beginning of his career, this is all extrajudicial stuff, right? Like the the killings when he was mayor of Davao were the product of this like shadowy death squad thing. It was so literally called the devout, devout death, death squad. squad. Yeah. Um, and and Duterte subtle, really loved kind of dropping hints that he might be involved in telling them who to kill. And like since then, one of the hitmen has come out and said, yeah, we like got the orders from this dude. He was there. Um, but it's, you know, it kind of challenges the idea that law and order is about kind of law and order equally when you have these not, you know, above ground paramilitary groups, not like SASS style things, but, 
these kind of shadowy death squads going around in the name of law and order and everyone else is going, oh, yeah, this is cool. This is fine. This is exactly what we want to see happening. Of course, I gather that kind of over the time he's been president, that's changed a little. And this week we we saw a real development uh, in terms of the police involvement. Yeah, 32 people were killed in one night, uh, which is the highest so far recorded by the police. But it's worth noting that the extrajudicial killing trend that Dara just talked about, that's still ongoing. Amnesty International estimates about 3,100 or so of the people who have been killed under Duterte in this war on drugs have been killed by the police. The other 3,900 or so have been killed by unidentified gunmen. And it seems very clear that they're government-sanctioned death squads. Duterte does this thing sometimes where he will literally go on television and read a list of names of people who he thinks are suspected of being involved in the drug trade, not just dealers, even just users sometimes. Well, judges, judges and politicians. So at one point, he literally read out 159 names one by one, just over and over and over again, reading these names, providing zero evidence. But there were top judges, police officers, and and politicians. And he ordered on live television that the police officers be immediately fired, that the judges have 24 hours to report to the, to the Supreme Court, and um, that politicians lose their government-provided security detail. So, like, all overnight. And there was, again, no evidence. This isn't like these people were all tried in like a real court of law. He literally just wrote up this list. And I mean, who knows if they were even involved. One guy actually on the list had died a couple of years before. This list isn't, there's no like process that they're really sitting down and like figuring out. And so the way it works too at the local level is basically the police will draw up this list of suspects and they send it to like the local community level leaders. And then they essentially put pressure on the local community leaders to both verify and, you know, legitimize the list and, hey, add, add whoever you want. Add, add some more. You should add some more. And so a lot of them will end up adding, you know, neighbors they have beef with that has nothing to do with drugs, you know, or a rival politician or somebody who doesn't mow their lawn perfectly, according to the Homeowners Association. I'm not sure if that's correct, but no, I, I don't I'm, think I'm so. guessing that's not right. But for the American context, you can see the kind of thing. Um, and so then, you know, they basically have this list of, of people and then they essentially make it public. And once you're named, you have a couple options. You can do nothing and probably get killed pretty quickly. Um, you can turn yourself in. And that's a whole another issue. So they've had, I think it's last I checked, it was in 2016, it was already at 600,000 people to turn themselves in. So I think probably by now we're approaching a million, I would guess. Um, the prisons are overflowing. It's insane. And when you turn yourself in, you have to basically sign this pledge that says, you know, I will never touch drugs again. I will never sell drugs. And then you have to go to like rehab or prison, um, depending on what they decide. And private rehab is too expensive. They're all full. So they end up in these community rehab centers where they are taught Zumba classes. Uh, they're taught life skills like soap making and hairdressing so that you could go into some other profession because I'm sure a drug dealer is going to be like, you know, I would just rather make soap. So. It's very strange. And then they end up basically they have to go through this once a week, like evaluation to make sure that they're they're, you know, following through on their commitment. And if they're not, you're essentially fair game all over again. So it's not systematized in the sense that like they're looking through evidence and figuring out it's literally just hit squad lists. And on top of that, the police get paid cash for every person they kill. They get nothing for every person they arrest. 
So I want to go back a little bit to Duterte's role in all this, because I feel like when you talk about lists of names, the image that is going to come up in American context is Joe McCarthy, right? This very like single minded, ideological, serious dude who like, yeah, was reading off these names of people who didn't necessarily have connections. But like it was part of this ideological crusade. Rodrigo Duterte, when he's not reading off lists of names, is a total loose cannon. Right. Like they're they're actually a. Filipino reporter told a, an American reporter who was profiling Duterte last year before the election of Donald Trump, he's like, there are no slow news days in the Philippines anymore. And I was reading that in preparation for this episode and going, oh, I feel you. I know that um, life now. Yeah. I know that life. But it's because he's, you know, he's got this tendency to just he will curse with abandon. He called Barack Obama son of a bitch and then said, oh, well, I didn't mean it. But you know, he'd better watch his back. He's, you know, he's been doing this flirtation with trying to end their historical alliance with the United States and realign with China. But there's a lot of stuff that he just says off the cuff from day to day. And his, my, you know, other government figures tell the press to engage in some creative interpretation to not take him literally. You take and, him seriously, but not literally. Right, exactly. And meanwhile, he's a politician who has built a career off building a certain plausible deniability distance to extrajudicial killings and who's reading off these names, but kind of has this reputation because he's such a colorful figure that he shouldn't necessarily have his rhetoric taken as a statement of policy. It's also important to recognize here, just at a basic level, the Philippines is a democracy, right? This isn't a situation where Duterte uh, somehow took power and then, uh, you know, set about abusing it to destroy political rivals or establish authoritarian control over his country. He might do that. The Philippines has a relatively recent history of dictatorship. It's a young democracy. But he was elected. He won a race on this platform. He essentially promised that he would clean up corruption and he would fight the war on drugs and he would do so violently in the same way they did when he was mayor of Davao, this city on the uh, southern island of Mindanao. And that that was popular. This wasn't. Uh, and it's still super popular. Yeah, yeah. The last I saw was that his approval rating was at eighty six percent. So 86. that is starting to slip um, in some way. So one big factor is the Catholic Church, which is incredibly powerful in the Philippines. And the Philippines has the the world's third largest Catholic population. Also just a huge country with 100 million people or so. Right. And yeah. And just for people who aren't super familiar with the Philippines, it's not like one solid landmass. It's literally over 7,000 islands that are named plus something like 600 unnamed islands. So it's like a chain of like a bunch of little islands. So infrastructure, stuff like that. And a lot of places is still really kind of crude. But it's starting to slip. So so you have had a big Catholic leader come out the other day and basically say, like, we, we need to do something. We need to stop this killing. Like, this is not okay. You have people who, in theory, liked the idea of cleaning up crime, cleaning up drugs, but they're seeing their sons and daughters being gunned down in the street. You know, there's gunfire nonstop. There are corpses in the street. Uh, you know, everyone's, you know, living kind of day to day in fear. And there's also the fact that it's not just, you know, that drug criminals are are evil people, right? Some of these people, I mean, it's not a good thing to be doing, but some of these people are literally doing this because that's their way out of poverty. That's the way of supporting their family. So a lot of the this is actually hurting the poorest people who are the ones who are also the ones victimized by the drug trade are also being hurt by the war against the drug trade. So it's really complicated. There's an amazing Duterte quote on that, actually. He says, when someone asked him, you know, your war on drugs is hurting the poor, he said, 
well, yeah, that's because I can't afford fighter jets to shoot down the rich in their private planes. Wow. Right? Uh, like he would kill rich drug dealers, but he openly admits that he can't. And in the meantime, this is the other thing that's fascinating about him is that he positions this as a kind of populism, right? right? Even though he admits that he's targeting the poor, he says, I'm doing it on behalf of the Philippines, cleaning this up for all of the people in the country. Uh, and he also built part of his reputation as mayor and part of what made him popular and, and beloved, really, in the town that he was from, cleaning up after a typhoon in 2013. He brought in personally a lot of humanitarian aid to places that were victimized. Right. So under um, under the previous president, Benigno Aquino, the Philippines had the highest economic growth rates in its modern history and was among the highest in Southeast Asia. So it's not like the Philippines was in this massive economic downturn. So are you suggesting it's not economic anxiety? I mean, it might not be economic anxiety. So that's another kind of factor that's really fascinating to me because it's not like there were, you know, pro- you know, the Trump kind of promised to bring back jobs and like, we'll basically put up with anything if you clean up this problem and help the economy. The economy was doing really well. It was doing the best it had done in a really long time. So it's kind of goes back to this whole, like, we want someone who's strong, who's powerful, who can, you know, get rid of this drug problem. But at the same time, like now that it's happening, it's like, well, okay, we didn't necessarily mean like this way. And it's, it's also weird, you know, when we talk about him kind of being a, a dictator kind of style or, you know, the authoritarian strongman, there are other patterns of behavior that he's done that kind of lend itself to that. So in order to to carry out these massive killings, right, he boosted the military and police um, budgets. But he did that by slashing the country's health budget by 25 percent, um, reducing expenditures on agriculture, labor, employment and foreign affairs. So people don't really like that. But on top of that, he the budget for the presidential office was increased tenfold and now includes a provision of one hundred and fifty million dollars for, quote, representation and entertainment. So while he's, you know, doing this, you know, he's cutting these programs that actually would theoretically help the economy. He's doing the stuff that's hurting the poor. And then he's building himself this kind of empire. So, I mean, I want to, I think that I worry that you might be being a little overly optimistic about the effect that this is having on uh, Duterte's, you know, approval ratings and public opinion. Because even though, you know, there's there's an erosion, you do have people speaking out against him. We're still not talking about an approval rating right. that's sinking below even it's like 67 percent. Absolutely. Um, and, I, you know, I think that it's not as much of a mystery on the one hand we definitely like have seen evidence in the past that law and order populism often does appeal to the very people whose communities are being hurt by it. Because if if they think that the real problem is vice and like that's what's hurting the people around them, then they're willing to take, you know, aggressive measures, even if they understand that like it's going to hurt them and people that they love. I think the other thing here is that if you have a growing middle class, especially an urban middle class, which was, you know, his base in Davao, um, that people can start to expect, well, now that we're richer, there's no reason we should have street crime problems. Like now that we're richer, like those people should go away. And I think, you know, there is some kind of, even though you have people literally getting gunned down in the streets, there are anecdotal reports that people feel safer in Manila now, that they don't worry about street crime as much. And, you know, how much that's based on, well, we have a tough guy as president. Right. So obviously there won't be crime anymore. It's clearly it must be safer. Right, right, right. I mean, it's that's always really hard to disentangle, but I don't think it's that surprising that, you know, people who kind of feel that it's now their 
their right and economic status as a growing economy to not have to deal with this stuff anymore um, would support this very aggressive campaign against it. So, Jen, I tend to agree with Dara here, uh, in part because I read this really great paper by a scholar at Cornell named Thomas Papinski, who studies Southeast Asia. The paper is called Democracy Against Disorder in Southeast Asia. And the argument that he makes is that Duterte is not a sui generis phenomenon, right? He's not just something that only happens in the Philippines. He looks at two other cases, uh, Indonesia and Thailand, and found that in both of them, harsh rhetoric about drug dealers and criminality has been wildly successful politically and has formed the foundation of a series of different campaigns and policies in those countries. And the reason that was successful was in part what Dara was just illustrating was that there was in in all the in the other two cases Indonesia and Thailand there was a growing middle class that had a higher expectation of safety they they wanted to have the quality of life something closer to what they see in their neighbors like Japan and the wealthier parts of China right. where street crime and corruption are much less much less rampant and they're willing to essentially tolerate massive human rights abuses and extrajudicial killings, which is what happened in the other places as well, to a lesser degree, but it still happened, when it targets the people that they see as a threat to safety, it, it really emphasizes the degree to which people value um, the appearance and the performance of safety over the real foundations of long-term stability and viability of a country. Right. No, yeah, I actually, I absolutely agree with both of you. Um, I just meant to make the point that it, there are some, especially with the church um, kind of speaking out, there's some erosion of, because it was just wildly supportive um, before everyone was just super supportive and you are starting to see some cracks in it. But I absolutely think that, that yeah, there's still tons of tons of support. Um, and I think your point, Zach, about, you know, the the reality versus the perception, and, and Dara, you touched on this as well, is really fascinating because there are, you know, nearly a million more people off the streets, right? Because they all surrendered and went to prison. It turns out that now the prisons are basically the headquarters for the drug trade because everyone just went there. And now I think the Justice Secretary estimated that 75% of the country's drug deals in 2016 were traced back to one single maximum security prison, which is just insane. That's just massive. So it's not that like the drug trade is gone, but the criminals have moved to a different area. We don't have to see them anymore, right? Like it's not in my backyard. I have this perception versus the reality that the drug trade is still thriving, right? Like it hasn't gone away. And I think as long as it's kind of not there, we don't have to think about it, that people like that, right? We've seen that before with like cleaning up homelessness initiatives, right? As long as these like you didn't really get rid of those people or find them homes, you just kind of shuttled them off to other areas so that the, you know, the wealthy kind of middle, upper middle classes and, and upper classes don't have to see that and, and deal with that. I mean, I think the other part of that is that in addition to being, you know, to a law and order rhetoric of anti-street crime, like Duterte thinks, you know, has like, there's this anti-corruption, you know, out, this performed outsideriness, right? Like he's the first president to come from Mindanao. He's got like this, you know, kind of I'm not like a typical politician bravado to him. There's a certain extent to which he can kind of be assumed to be taking on the establishment just because of who he is. And cough, Trump, cough. Yeah, I mean, um, 
And I think that even though, you know, even though, as Zach said, he can't actually go after the rich in the same way he can go after the poor, that he does have that reputation of like, if he could do it, he totally would. He did it, you know, in, in devout, like he actually didn't allow, you know, businessmen to get off with impunity and that kind of thing. So there's a certain extent to which in the same way that the out of sight, out of mind problem allows people to think that they're safer when it comes to street crime distracting from corruption just by being someone who can be trusted to take on corruption and keeping all the attention on yourself as opposed to other politicians allows people to think that the system is somehow no longer corrupt. Right. I think, um, and Zach, when you said, you know, cough, Trump, cough, like, I don't think we should actually just skip over that fact, right? I think it's actually really important because there are a lot of parallels. It's not to say in any way that Trump is, you know, clearly on the level of Duterte in terms of like gunning down thousands of people in the streets, right? But when you talk about that, I mean, if you think about, you know, the Muslim ban, right? It basically banned, at first it was seven countries, then they went back and, and changed it to six. But, you know, seven Muslim majority countries, none of which had had citizens that had carried out, you know, massive terrorist attacks in the United States. You know, and, and I've written about this and others have written about this, that like if you were going to pick certain countries to certain places to ban, those weren't the right ones. Like it didn't even make sense in a counterterrorism way, let alone humanitarian and, and, you know, diplomatic and all the other issues. And it's the same kind of thing, right? If a lot of supporters were like, well, yeah, you know, he's cleaning up, you know, the immigration, he's, he's keeping those terrorists out. And, you know, the details, whether or not it was actually going to make a difference were kind of irrelevant, Right. The vital difference, and, and it's funny, people ask Duterte about this Trump comparison because it gets made a lot, right? Two people who promise to restore law and order to their countries, who claim that they alone and their tough guy, blunt, brash speaking, you know, whole shtick can fix the country's problems. Like the, everyone notices this. And what Duterte says when you ask him is, and this is more or less a direct quote, I am not a bigot. Right? And he actually has worked for inclusion, particularly of um, the Philippines' Muslim minority. Uh, it's a majority Catholic country, as Jen said, but the island of Mindanao, where he's from, is home to a large portion of the fairly large Muslim minority, including some uh, Muslim separatist and Islamist groups. Right. And, like he has been doing the good Muslim, bad Muslim thing a little bit, right? That's like true. trying to go really hard against the Muslim separatist groups. Yeah. He's, he's uh, threatened Abu Sayyaf as a terrorist group there. Uh, that's affiliated with ISIS, and he has threatened to, quote-unquote, eat their livers with salt and vinegar, I believe, which is, I think, probably the right condiment choice for human liver, but I, I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. Yeah. Is it halal, though, I'm is a... the question? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dara with the halal jokes. I mean, I'm a vegetarian, so I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really also know. Also not a cannibal, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I gave up meat, actually. I was just tired of eating I humans. Eat, I eat animal meat. I do draw the line at literal human livers. Uh, but yeah, I mean, when you talk about Trump, too— he literally called up Duterte and congratulated him and said, you know, hey, man, I just wanted to congratulate you. I hear you're doing a fantastic job with that drug war, you know, with the drug problem. Right. And this is after, mind you, like Obama had legit canceled a meeting with Duterte, which right. is like the red card of performed diplomacy. Like it, the last time it had happened was after Putin took in Edward Snowden. It's like, we are mad yeah. at you. Yeah. And the ostensible reason was because, you know, he called Obama a son of a bitch. But it was really because he was saying, if they try to bring up human rights, we are going to fight them. Right. Uh, and, you know, the the fact that you could engage in thousands of extrajudicial killings and not expect international 
opprobrium was right. like a big problem for the Obama administration. For the Trump administration, it's great. They're doing what they set out to do. But the problem there is is that, you know, the U.S., because of the long kind of mutual defense treaty, because of the long security cooperation, because we're still doing security cooperation and helping, you know, Duterte has said he doesn't want it. He doesn't want U.S. troops there to help, um, which is bullshit because he does and and always has and wants them to stay because it helps fight a terrorism problem, right? But the problem is that because of that, the U.S. theoretically would have some leverage, right? They would technically, in a way that, you know, maybe another country wouldn't say like, hey, maybe could you chill out on, on some of the extrajudicial killings or, you know, we're going to maybe have some some consequences compared to, say, the U.N., which two U.N. monitors basically criticized Duterte's extrajudicial killings. And he literally responded, and this is a direct quote, fuck you, U.N. So, you know, I guess he could clearly say that to Obama and called him a son of a bitch. Um, but, you know, whereas the U.N. may not have the kind of leverage, like the U.S. actually has, like that's some of the reasons why people in the U.S. Um, kind of defense and, and foreign policy establishment often argue for security and defense cooperation is that theoretically it's supposed to give you some kind of leverage to be able to like, you know, better train people and and have some sort of say in trying to kind of curb their worst instincts. And whether or not that's true, we're not even trying anymore. Like Tillerson has literally laid out, you know, foreign policy doctrine, basically saying we don't, we're not going to prioritize human rights. We're not going to prioritize, you know, democracy promotion. We're just going to prioritize, you know, national security interests. And so, you know, for people like Duterte, it's it's essentially, you know, a green light to just continue doing what you're doing. And we're not going to ever say anything to you. And then you have Trump literally congratulating him. I mean, my question about, you know, whether it would be effective for the U.S. to push back, though, is that like, in Duterte, like Trump, like Erdogan in Turkey, I mean, I think those are kind of three very high profile examples right. of people who are threatening to undo alliances that have existed, threatening to realign their countries within their regions and who appear to all intents and purposes to be not just kind of leading government in this charismatic top down style, but are super thin skinned right. and are using that as a as a way to make decisions about diplomacy, right? Like Erdogan it has threatened his relationships with several European countries because people make fun of him on European television. Like Duterte has the kind of, you know, tough guy, motorcycle switchblade facade, but it's also pretty clear that if anyone says anything mean about him, he will be like, fine, I'm going to, you know, not do joint military exercises with you and go make nice with China and Putin instead. There's kind of this you know, I like I I think of this as like the axis of snowflakes, right? These three incredibly important world leaders. <laughs> oh, that's who, such a good phrase. If you Love insult it. them, will do something that will, you know, will just like totally change their regional geopolitics just because you said something mean. The other weird thing about Duterte. Axis of snowflakes, holy shit. The other weird thing about Duterte is that he and you would never guess this from the law and order rhetoric, right? He comes from a left-wing background. Uh, his mentor was the head of the Communist Party in university, uh, and he really came of political age during the Vietnam War, and that's what shaped his opinion of the United States. So it's not just that he was insulted by Obama. It's that this guy who makes a mockery out of the notion of the rule of law and democratic accountability comes from like a principled anti-imperialist background. Now, he's not acting on that. He's working with U.S. troops, special forces, to fight Abu Sayyaf. And while he talks about cozying up to China, there hasn't, in 
uh, certain disputes, the geopolitical reality of the Philippines is that it is in conflict with China in the South China Sea. They have competing claims over different territory, and only an alliance with the U.S. could give the Philippines, which is nowhere near China's military potency, a degree of uh, strength to back up any assertions it makes, because I don't think either Beijing or Manila at this point care that much about international law. So he's kind of boxed in, and he makes these big shows out of being angry, but I think a serious realignment away from the U.S.-led alliance system would be very difficult for him to accomplish. Right. I think, to be fair, I think there have been a few countries and leaders who are communist and or anti-imperialist who have engaged in massive state violence and no, oppression. No, no, no. It's, it's not about the state violence. It's about the what we would code as, obviously, yes, right? Like, I'm not trying to say that there wasn't Stalin. <laughs> right. Right, <when> I, <laughs> right. Just to remind listeners, Stalin is a thing. No, what was. I'm trying to say is that law and order rhetoric is coded in the United States as being right. a right-wing yeah. phenomenon. Absolutely. And we just don't, we don't normally think of it as being a left-wing thing where it's all about, uh, you know, equality and lovey-dovey stuff, right? Like, that's, it's just... He he defies the categories that we like to superimpose on politics right. in a lot of different ways. But when you think about, you know, even here with Obama, right, like he deported unprecedented numbers of undocumented people. So there is that. So, you know, even the kind of conservative, liberal kind of breakdown isn't always real when you get down to policy kind of stances and, you know, comes down to individuals. But I love, you know, the, the <laughs> axis of snowflakes is great. And if you think about dictators kind of historically tend to be pretty thin-skinned, right? Some are better political operators on the kind of international stage, um, you know, and some will, you know, take personal slights and not break a full alliance. But I mean, you even see, you know, Kim Jong-un with the, the North Korea crisis that we've been kind of going through. We've talked about recently on the show a few times, you know, we have this kind of machismo kind of back and forth you know, saber rattling, like who's tougher, who's going to blink first. And it's kind of a lot of that similar, you know, that cult of personality that they're trying to kind of kind of create and construct. And it's not to say that we're, you know, that Trump is this, you know, or Duterte even is this kind of Kim Jong-un like figure. It's We're talking in different degrees to extremes here. But there is a kind of cult of personality kind of element to it. Right. Like the two go together. The ideological unmappability, like these are people are politicians who are less beholden to a political coalition, to a political institution than they are to the fact that the force of their personality makes them popular. And that means that their personal peccadilloes become the means by which policy is made rather than competing claims that their coalition members make on them. If you want to go into the sociology here, uh, Max Weber in the early 20th century called this charismatic leadership as opposed to bureaucratic leadership. Uh, And it's something that, you know, the whole point of it is that you can't survive the death of the leader and continue to have a viable political system. So at home, I have a giant couch, right? It's really comfy. It's red. uh, And the pillows are really fluffy. I love it. I often sit on it with my dog. The problem is that big fluffy couches often tend to eat up my keys. And it's hard to find them. And if I take out my phone, sometimes I drop it in there too. I need a product to find things. Luckily, there's this new thing called Tracker. It's the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. You put it on what you tend to lose, in my case, my keys, maybe your wallet. You could put it on your dog if you wanted to, but I don't lose him. Uh, It's really small. And so when you lose it, uh, use your phone 
And a 90 decibel alert will help you find it in seconds. And there are really bright LED lights that allow you to find it in the dark. You can even locate it if it's miles away because every tracker user is part of a crowd locate network. So if you want to find out more about this product or you want to buy it, if you're forgetful like me, go to thetrackr.com. Enter the promo code WORLDLY to get 20% off any order. That's thetrackr.com, not tracker, the track R, the letter R, promo code WORLDLY for 20% off. We're going to move to somewhere not actually that far away from the Philippines for our Elsewhere segment. We're going to talk about Australia, which is currently going through a very weird political crisis, wherein dozens of politicians have found out that they are not eligible for public office because they have foreign citizenship, which is apparently unconstitutional in Australia. And this scandal has crept up to the level of the deputy prime minister who found out that he may very well have been a New Zealand citizen and thus might not be eligible for office. Dara, what the fuck? Bear in mind that Zach is only asking me this because I have the timeline of members of parliament who have been who have revealed that they unknowingly had dual citizenship. Well, I was going to say because you're immigration. No, reporter, no, 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 no. But... I mean, I've been following this for funsies as the immigration reporter. It's yeah. So when the Australian Constitution was written uh, in the late 1800s, before Australia was like fully an independent country, they were like, yeah, no dual citizenship. Of course. Australian citizenship wasn't a thing then. And that's, you know, a lot of the politicians who have come out and said, oh, it turns out I'm a dual citizen were, you know, it's dual citizenship with the UK or with New Zealand or with Canada or places that when the constitution was written, it wouldn't have posed a problem at all. Um, But, you know, fast forward to 2017, 49% of Australians are either foreign born or one of their parents is foreign born. It's really not super easy to guarantee that everyone is not going to have dual citizenship, especially because immigration law is complicated. So in July, you had like two members of the Green Party, which is one of the opposition or, you know, not part of the governing coalition in Australia, uh, kind of both say, gee, I just found out that I it looks like I'm a dual citizen. I'm going to have to resign from parliament. And of course, the government started, the you know, governing party members started dunking on them and going, how is this possible? Obviously, you should check this out before you run for parliament. It's right there in the constitution. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, yada, yada, yada. Bad move. Because uh, it turns out that a week later, the resources minister, who's a member of one of the kind of minority parties who's in the coalition government, said, well, I it looks like my mother applied for Italian citizenship on my behalf in 2006. I'm going to step down from the ministry while I figure this stuff out. I'm going to hand over my duties to Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce, whose name I'm mentioning not only because it's an awesome name, but because it's going to become relevant real quick. Another... Senator got referred to the high court by his own party after confirming he was a UK dual citizen last week. And then this week, Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce steps up and says, so I found out from the New Zealand government that I might be a dual New Zealand citizen. I'm not going to step down. I'm going to let the high court figure this out because it's not my fault. I didn't know I was a New Zealand citizen. The party to which the Deputy Prime Minister belongs, meanwhile, turns around and blames 
the Australian opposition of trying to get the New Zealand government to undermine the right. Australian government. It's like by, a conspiracy. Right, right. And it, it, it does turn out that a member of Australian Labour did ask the New Zealand parliament to, like, look into the citizenship of Barnaby right. Joyce, which is a weird, bad thing to do, but also not the same as a literal coup. Um, and, right. you know, at the same time that their deputy prime minister has been going, gee, I got tripped up by the Constitution, too. They're trying to go after five Labour MPs and saying if they don't resign, then we'll ask the high court for them. So they're Sorry, taking la- Labour's the left-wing yes. opposition, the main left-wing yes. party. Yeah. And so the government, even as several of its ministers and just now again, the deputy, just on Thursday, the deputy leader of another party in the governing coalition said that she was a dual UK citizen. The governing coalition has suffered a lot of blows as a result of this, but they've still been super aggressive. Instead of saying, gee, maybe we need to revisit the Australian constitution, they've been saying, well, yeah, this is our problem, but it's even more the Labour Party's problem. Right, but doesn't, so Malcolm Turnbull, the the prime minister of Australia, um, who had a famously horrible call with Donald Trump, um, in which Donald Trump essentially hung up on him, if if I have this right, that the governing coalition has a one seat majority in the lower house. In the lower house, right? So the threat is that they could lose that, and that would be a problem, right? So if they that would lose, be because of Mr. Joyce, right? Yeah. So if, if Joyce, but I just want to kind of go back and and think about like how bizarre this is. A lot of these are being found out because it turns out they once traveled on a UK passport, right? And they're like, well, how did you get that? You must be a citizen. But I feel like this is something you maybe would have to answer. And just to be clear, it's not unconstitutional to be in Australia or an Australian and have dual citizenship. It's that you can't stand for elections or be a member of parliament. Right. Like that would actually have made it easier, right? If <laughs> if Australia did not permit dual citizenship, none of this would have happened. Right. But I mean, there was the kind of, there, there was one case of traveling on a foreign passport, but for the most part, this has really been a lot of people who were Australian born, whose parents were not Australian born, assumed that because they had not lived in these countries <laughs> right. that that wasn't going to be a problem for them. But like citizenship law is really freaking complicated. Yeah. And it's not super easy to assume, you know, you you not only have to know the laws of your own country, but you have to know the laws of any other country that your parents could have derived citizenship from. So right. like if I recall, one of these ministers who was caught up was born in Canada. Yeah. And that got them Canadian citizenship. Yeah, well, and actually, that's a bit obvious. So it turns right. out, actually, that the reason he didn't know is because his parents told him, incorrectly, it turns out, that, no, you have to actively apply to be a Canadian citizen if you're born there. It's not automatic. And he was like, oh, cool, so I guess I'm not a Canadian citizen. Turns out he probably should have Googled that instead of just trusting <laughs> right. mom and dad. Um, and then, you know, the other one, I think Barnaby Joyce is the one who, you know, moved from New Zealand when he was three years old. And then the guy who, turns out, his mother had applied accidentally for him. For, he's never even been to Italy. Right. He's like, never set is, foot in Italy. This is the thing. Like, Italy has a very aggressive, if you have ever, li- you know, if you have Italian descent, like, you should feel free to come home now position that it's adopted over the last decade. But dude's name is Matt Canavan. It's not like he's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's not like Maggio Caravaggio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. We got shit for our French jokes last week. Now we're going to get shit I'm going to be Italian. in Italy next month, and I'm sure someone will be very mad at me. It's um, but, all right. but, you know, it's not. We're sorry, Italian that, listeners. Yes. We love, um, we love you. It is a complicated situation. And the reason that this is all in front of the high court instead of like 
you know, some of these people have resigned, others have not. There are just a lot of questions that the High Court of Australia now has to resolve because there's a genuine question of if you're a dual citizen, but you don't know you're a dual citizen, like what is the mens rea standard, as they right. would say in the law? What is the like knowingness standard that's being applied here? But the problem politically is that a lot of these dudes, including Barnaby Joyce, were the ones going around when it was just a Green Party problem right. saying, you know, this is a black and white situation. <laughs> right. Turns out, oops, you know, pointing fingers. So I was actually like I was interested in this, obviously. And I was looking at like how how common is this, you know, in terms of like the international community? Like do most. And it turns out that very, very few countries actually have laws in the books like this. Um, Egypt is one. And I actually knew that because. There was an issue. Egypt is even harsher. So it's not just that you can't have ever currently you can't currently hold dual citizenship. You can't have ever held citizenship in another country. And it gets even worse. You have to be born from two parents, neither of whom have ever had citizenship in another country. So we're talking hardcore. Not only have you only ever been an Egyptian citizen, your mother and father must have only ever been. And so during the 2012 elections, this actually was an issue. So a lot of presidential candidates who were running suddenly found out that like their mother had once traveled on a British passport or an American passport, right? So one of the Salafi uh, can party candidates ended up being disqualified because it turns out that like their mother had once had dual, not just they, we were, they weren't, you know, Egyptians. They were just dual citizens. They also still had Egyptian citizenship. So there are some countries where it's, you know, it's even stricter. But I mean, what's I don't know the U.S. Well, I mean, I know you can't have, you know, be president. You can't have, you know, not be a U.S. citizen. Right. Like a, a natural born U.S. citizen. But I don't know what the deal is with our Congress. Like, can you hold dual citizenship? So the U.S. generally takes a very broad view toward citizenship insofar as it doesn't have the kind of standards that other countries have about having to be descended from U.S. citizens. And one of the ways that comes up is anyone being born in the U.S. qualifies as a U.S. citizen. And another way is that you can be a member of Congress and not have and, and have dual citizenship. You can be a member of Congress and not have to disclose that you're a dual citizen even. Um, it's, you know, it, the kind of nation of immigrants thing right. which took root in the U.S. very differently than it did in Australia right. means, among other things, that it's very, you know, even if to be president, you have to be a natural born U.S. citizen, there's nothing that's going to prevent someone based on where their family came from, uh, based on, you know, based on their family history from participating in U.S. politics. This to me just underscores how arbitrary and cruel immigration law is more generally, right? It, well, in it's kind of funny that this is the kind of scandal that's roiling Australia's political system. It's kind of funny in part because a lot of these are frankly privileged white people who are just finding out that they are suffering because of an anachronistic law, in reality, a lot of people are being forced in the U.S. And, and in Australia, too, to operate under a series of arbitrary, painful, and difficult laws that restrict their ability to do much more basic tasks than running for parliament because of where they were born and then where they ended up or where their parents were born. The, the cruelty of deportation really has hammered – has been hammered home for me by this administration and children being separated from their parents, children who were born in the U.S. and parents who came here without papers. This is a symptom. This is a funny symptom of a much deeper problem of – in a world where it's really easy for people to move around, 
trying to separate out people by national borders that were essentially arbitrarily imposed and a lot of people don't want to abide by. You don't have to think of immigration laws as necessarily unjust. And Zach, I know you do. I just I I am not necessarily on team open borders, um, but I still like look at what's going on in Australia and see, gee, it turns out that this is an incredibly complicated that, you know, immigration law is always a very complicated thing. And finding out what citizenship status someone has, where they have citizenship status, is something that people don't necessarily even know about themselves, that authorities may not necessarily know in a lot of these cases that, you know, the New Zealand government had to, like, go check its files. And yeah, it turns out Barnaby Joyce is a New Zealand citizen. Who'd have thunk it? The fact that a lot of the force multiplier stuff that the Trump administration has wanted to do that, you know, the Bush administration started and then Obama administration kind of modified relies on assuming that line police officers will be able to determine who's legally in the United States. The one of the objections to that, you know, in addition to like racial profiling concerns and all of that is how are they going to know when this is literally something that gets adjudicated in court often? It's not super clear that, you know, you can't pull somebody over and say, you weren't born in the U.S., therefore you're not legal. You don't have your papers, therefore you're not legal. Um, The fact that it's taking, like, the entire Australian government is currently in convulsions because they don't know who's a dual citizen and what legal culpability they have for not knowing their citizenship status should really be a red flag for anyone who thinks that it's very easy to identify who's not here legally and deport them. Right. I also want to make a point, too, that, you know, Zach, when you were saying that this is this is funny, and it is funny to us, especially, you know, as Americans, like watching, like, how do you not know you're a citizen of another country? And it's kind of this wacky thing, you know, and then we have people like Johnny Depp's former girlfriend, I guess, you know, making fun of Barnaby Joyce for this whole, you know, thing on Twitter. And there's there's a out. whole backstory with there's dogs. A, there's a whole backstory with dogs and he wouldn't let their dogs in anyway. But I think it's also just important to to realize that, like, there are serious issues that the Australian government is struggling to deal with. Like, there are serious problems with counterterrorism and immigration and things like that, that, that it's not good for anyone in Australia, probably for the government to be collapsing, right? It's difficult for making policy if your entire government is in convulsion. So I don't want to just, you know, make too light of the fact that the Australian government is having kind of problems because there are a lot of, we have uh, one listener who emailed us to talk about this and we were already planning to talk about Australia, but we were glad to have your email and was saying, you know, I'm, I'm Australian and this is kind of a big deal, right? Like this is, we have serious issues we need to deal with and this is kind of a problem. I mean, I think a lot of what makes it funny is the historical irony of it, right? Right. Um, we've certainly seen in the U.S. that there are moments during this news marathon where, like, the irony just gets so overwhelming that everyone has to make jokes about it. And I think that a country that Australia, more than any other country, was defined by the racism of its immigration policy right. through a lot of the 20th century. It was literally called the White Australia Policy. And... Even to this day, while the government has made a, a lot of, you know, has has made strides in dealing with, you know, treating its indigenous population better, has made strides in de-racistizing its immigration system. It's taking a very, you know, it's taken a very firm line against, you know, quote unquote, boat people like refugees coming from the rest of the South Pacific. And so to see it brought 
into an immigration scandal that is essentially, you know, as as you folks have said, about white people problems, about other countries from within the British Commonwealth is kind of a reminder that as clear as the lines may seem to be between people who are coming here by boat and people who are, you know, good immigrants, that those are not always as easily aligned as people might like. That's a perfect note on which to close out our show. Uh, I want to say thank you uh, to my wonderful regular colleague, Jen, to Dara for joining us for this special episode. Thank you so much, Dara. Thank you, Dara. To our producers, Riyadh and Jillian. Peter's actually in Australia right now. Oh, right. That's right. I forgot. A regular producer. Uh, And to all, all of you listeners, as usual, we appreciate you so much. We've tried to do a better job answering our emails at worldly at vox.com. Again, that's worldly at vox.com. If you guys want to get in touch, suggest new episode ideas, suggest elsewhere segments, tell us that our Italian accent is bad, whatever you'd like, tune in. Thank you so much for listening. And definitely go on to Apple Podcasts to rate and review. That is definitely the way that people find out about us and hear about us. So if you'd like our show, please rate and review. Tell a friend. Tell 20 friends. Tell all your friends about us. Um, You can also find us on Stitcher and uh, Google Play and other platforms. So thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.